I'd just like to ask, how do you handle it when you face or experience or actually are aware of injustice and oppression? Like, for instance, you uh, find out that your kid is being mistreated at school. There's some bully that's kind of throwing him around on the bus or pushing him into the locker. And doesn't that evoke some sort of visceral reaction out of you? Like, whoa, wait a second here. I want to step in because that's wrong. How do you face it? And what do you do when you find out that uh, in your classroom, some kid, just because either an athletic coach said it should be or a teacher's favorite, they got a grade that they didn't earn or deserve. Or worse yet, you got accused of something that you didn't do. And you face injustice like that, and you're, it gets you. Or in your office, you were bypassed for a promotion because the boss had a favorite. It doesn't matter that you've got better results. The uh, boss thought they might just go in a little bit different direction, and you got passed over, and it's unjust. We loathe when we experience slander and libel when someone decides to go public with their fake news and they go out and try to destroy someone make them look bad send it out in emails and well i tell you what it, it bothers us when police are wrongly accused like well they did all this to me and whatever and it takes sometimes years for the truth to get out and yet those guys and those gals they find that their life is put on hold and their reputation's at stake we don't like when we see a lack of integrity, like in a courtroom. We, when we hear of world leaders and dictators that are absolutely oppressive to their people, whether they imprison them, kill them, uh, turn them into slaves, I tell you what, that evokes something in us. All I have to say, the name Saddam Hussein, and it brings up all sorts of images. I mean, in the last, in the 20, last part of the 20th century, there was no one greater of just oppressing his people than this guy killed thousands of his own when we uh, hear of innocent men and women going to prison that kind of injustice that bothers us and when we find folks that are absolutely guilty and they somehow walk away with no consequences we're just like there's something wrong with that when we uh, see situations where people are physically or emotionally abused or children are brought into prostitution or turned into slaves or when we hear or see or experience racism there is something about us that says that is wrong and this kind of injustice is intolerable and then when you think about the persecution of christians around the world not just isis but how about this guy here kim jong-un the second north korea's leader uh, we have to work on estimates, but it is estimated that he's got over 100,000 Christians that he's locked up in his prisons and they are in these camps and they are literally tortured to death, starving, working them to death. And he seems to get away with it. And when we face this sort of injustice and oppression, when things are not right and maltreatment seems to go unaddressed, I got a question for you. How in the world do you live by faith in a God who allows this kind of injustice? How do you face injustice and oppression and do so by faith? Well, that's why I'm so glad you brought your Bible today and you're looking at Ecclesiastes chapter 3, beginning in verse 16, because Solomon is going to take this evil on head on. Now, King Solomon, the third king of Israel, as he's basically writing out his journal, that's what you've got here in the book of Ecclesiastes. 
He had just got done chapter three and we've looked at for several weeks. Chapter three, verses one through 15, talking about that there is an appointed time for everything, that God is sovereign. He's in control and there's appointed time for everything. Well, now he's going, well, there is a problem. How in the world do you reconcile that kind of truth with the fact that there is great injustice in the world? Now, I'll tell you, the people of Israel, Solomon's people, they knew what injustice was like. You remember when they spent time in Egypt? For 400 years, they were slaves. They were oppressed and beaten down. They were dominated by the Egyptians. It was a part of their history. And even in Solomon's own family, do you happen to remember what his dad's name was? Wow. No one, okay, I thought the extra hour of sleep was really going to be helpful. It was really helpful for first hour. Okay, that's right. His name is David, right? And really interesting, but in David's early adulthood... He spent a good chunk of his life being oppressed by the maniac King Saul, Israel's first king. I mean, guys throwing spears at him, taking armies, hunting him down like an animal. It's interesting when you look at all of scripture, first Samuel, like 18 to the end of the book, all pretty much deals with Saul's oppression and all the injustice that David experienced. By the way, when you read the Psalms, Many of David's psalms are written from the experience of being viciously oppressed and all the injustice that he faced, pleading with God, you got to help me. You're my only help and you're my only hope. So how do you live by faith in the face of injustice and oppression? Well, let's take a look. Let's look, begin verse 16 and following. The first thing you and I need to know is this. We need to look to God to bring justice. He says, Verse 16, furthermore, I have seen under the sun that in the place of justice, there is wickedness and in the place of righteousness, there is wickedness. He's talking about life under the sun, life lived apart from God, life lived like God's not part of the equation. So I'm going to do whatever I want kind of mentality life under the sun. He says, you know, I find that there is wickedness. There is crookedness in the law courts. There is dishonesty in the government. This isn't something new. This is something existing in Solomon's time. And he's even the king. And he's like, I see it. And it is grievous. In fact, he calls it. It is wickedness. You see, the absence of justice is just another indicator. We live in a fallen world. We have fallen people living in a fallen world and they are sinners. And injustice is just another manifestation of the fact that this world is broken and we need a deliverer. I mean, he's like, man, how is it? The innocent, they, they get charged as guilty and the guilty, they go off as innocent. Daniel Webster, the famous American orator, once said this about justice. He called it, quote, the ligament which holds civilized beings and nations together. And in Solomon's day, this ligament had been shredded. Now, I just need you to understand something. You've faced the reality, but sometimes good people lose and bad people win. And that bothers us. Let me ask you, would you like to live in a perfect world? Would you like to live where, like, man, bad things, injustice happens, and God just immediately deals with that? Would you like that? Yeah, some of you are like, yeah, sign me up for that world. I mean, you know, think of it. Uh, let's say uh, someone, you're driving, you're minding your own business, and you're listening to your little TED Talk or whatever, and someone cuts you off, and you go off into the ditch. And five minutes later, that guy's car breaks down. Justice immediately. Look at that. God's on top of it. Would you like it, uh, for instance, if someone uh, cheated you in business, 
And the next month, they go bankrupt because God's addressing it. Or that you were, someone just went off on you, and you were unjustifiably experienced their wrath and anger, and that night, all their teeth fell out. Because after all, what? God's bringing what? Justice. You guys, you like a world like that? Oh yeah, some of you are like, yeah, that'd be awesome. Uh, that'd be awesome if he considered that you are also imperfect, and you'd have to live in that world. Meaning... You gossip about someone, your tongue turned green. You're, you lust after someone, your IQ takes another dip. You know what I'm saying? Would you, would you like that? Oh, no, 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 no. You know, I want you to understand something. This is hard. But God being patient with justice is a blessing. And it's difficult. That means there is even an allowance in his sovereignty for injustice. But don't get me wrong. God is going to deal with every injustice. If you want a text on it, just keep reading. Look at verse 17. I've got it underlined in my Bible. I said to myself, God will judge both the righteous man and the wicked man for a time for every matter and for every deed is there. It looks like right now, Evil, injustice, unrighteousness, they're like running up the score 150 to nothing. But I want you to know that there is a day coming and God is going to bring judgment. You see that word there? It's kind of like just a little, uh, it's shorthand for God's eternal judgment and in God's presence. He says, there is a time for every matter and for every deed is there. God's going to deal with it. Remember what we saw uh, last week in verse 15? says that which is has been already and that which will be has already been for God seeks what has passed by. Literally, it has the idea that God is taking an account of everything that happens and he's going to bring judgment. Now, if you want to see what it looks like, if you can bear it, you'll find at the end of your Bible, Revelation chapter 20, verses 11 through 15. If you want to see what this looks like. There are literally these books that are opened of all the recorded deeds because God misses nothing. And if you haven't placed your faith in Christ to be the one who has paid the penalty for your sins, you're going to be judged. And it doesn't end well for eternity for you. Now, we may not see justice in this time, but justice will be carried out in eternity. God is surely going to judge. We don't like it though that people seem to get away with it right they like man they skated by there weren't really consequences for that i want you to know it may look like that that's just temporary god being patient paul harvey uh wrote spoke of a man by the name of gary tyndall he was charged with robbery he appears in a california court uh, courtroom before this guy this judge armando rodriguez and uh, so Gary Tyndall, man, he really, you know, he's guilty and he really didn't want to face the judge. And so he made a request that he had to go to the bathroom. You know what I'm saying? Like, what, OK, so. All right. So they send a police officer or two with him and, and Gary like goes into the bathroom. But uh, he's got other things on his mind. He climbs up the plumbing, removes the ceiling tile, and he starts crawling around the ceiling while they're all thinking he's just kind of locked in there taking care of things there. He's making his great escape. And he got about 30 feet when all of a sudden he fell through one of the tiles. And lo and behold, you know where he ended up? Back in the same courtroom with this judge, Armando Rodriguez, back in his actual courtroom, falling through. And I'll tell you, it might seem like right now, 
People are slipping by. You're like, God didn't see it. He's not going to deal with it. You might think, like, I got away with it. And you're going to appear before the judge. This text tells us God will judge both the righteous and the wicked. Now, uh, he goes on to say in verses 18 and 19, he said, You know, I said to myself concerning the sons of men, God has surely tested them in order for them to see that they are but beasts. For the fate of the sons of man and the fate of beasts is the same. For as one dies, so dies the other. Indeed, they all have the same breath, and there is no advantage for man over beast, for all is vanity. Now, Solomon isn't looking at eternal destinies here. What he's saying is that all flesh, there's something in common. All flesh dies. And what he's, he's saying is that God is testing people, men, women. He's sifting them and he's showing them what they're really like. And he goes on to say in verses 20 and 21, all go to the same place. All came from the dust and all return to the dust. When you die, your body turns to dust, whether you're a hamster or a human. And he says, verse 20, all go to the same place, all came from dust, and all return to the dust. And who knows that the breath of man ascends upward, and the breath of beast descends downward to the earth. Now, this text, he's trying to show you there's a great difference between animals and people. Now, I know that we've got some confusion going on there. But let me assure you, if you're a human, you are very different. How different? Ecclesiastes 3.11, remember we looked at it? That God has placed eternity in your heart there is a reason why you actually have a desire to know god there is a reason why you see religion in every culture in the world animals don't have religion animals don't seek after god why because they're different you see it seems like their spirit they just goes to the earth but when a human dies you live on for eternity and what he's saying there who knows who knows god knows and you're going to deal with him. Now, the criminal or the person that's committing all sorts of injustice and oppression, they think that they can get away with it. But I want you to know that death has some really good running shoes. And it is going to catch you. And you will face your maker. If you really want justice, do you want it? Then you want God if you want justice, you want God. This text tells us, verse 17, God's going to judge the righteous and the wicked. You know, you know how the book of Ecclesiastes ends, right? I know that some of you are reading it. Some of you are writing it out. Good job. You know how it ends? Very final verse in this book says this. For God will bring every act to judgment, everything which is hidden, whether it is good or evil, God is going to bring judgment to bear. Now, there's folks that think they can get away with it. I think, you remember I referenced to Saddam Hussein. So he became kind of like the most wanted. And it took us a while to find him. But you remember December 2003, they finally caught up with him, or actually, there he is. He was, when they found him, they found him in like this eight-foot hole in the ground. One of the observers, one of the soldiers there said it was, there's like mice and rats running around in there. And that's where their Saddam Hussein is. You see him, he's, he's holding that card. It was the Ace of Spades. Remember those cards? As the most wanted guy. What they did is once they pulled him out of the hole, 
They took him to a secret location where they presented him to four members of Iraq's governing council because they wanted to make absolutely certain that it was Saddam Hussein that they had. And now what they wanted to do is just have these guys observe Saddam Hussein in another room or, or watch it through a video. But the guys on the Iraq council, governing council, are like, no, we want to talk to him and we want to look him in the eye and see him face to face. And Hussein, Saddam Hussein apparently was belligerent and he was unrepentant and saying all sorts of vile things. And yet they made the request that they had and they said, all right, we'll let you talk with him. And so for 30 minutes, these four guys basically went face to face with Saddam Hussein and they kept confronting him with all of his crimes. Right before they left, final guy, Mr. Rabai, delivered these final words to the former dictator. Quote, may God curse you. Tell me. When are you going to be accountable to God and the day of judgment? What are you going to tell him about Halbajah? And that's where Saddam Hussein and his forces literally sent all that poisonous gas and killed hundreds of their own people. And the mass graves and the Iran-Iraq war and the thousands and thousands executed. What are you going to tell God? And Saddam answered just using curses and vulgarities. I want you to know something. God will judge. And if you want to live by faith in the face of injustice, you've got to look to God to bring justice. Let me give you something else here. This is going to be really surprising for some of you that haven't read ahead. If you want to live by faith in the face of injustice, not only you look to God to bring justice, but you need to find joy in the journey. Look at verse 22. He says, I have seen that nothing is better than that man should be happy in his activities, for that is his lot. For who will bring him to see what will occur after him? So in the midst of wickedness and all the injustice that's out there and that God's going to bring judgment, there is this statement made about finding joy in the journey. You see, he actually uses the word happy. Now, I want you to know, I studied this out in the Hebrew, and I looked it all up. I'm like, what does this word happy mean? And I want you to know, from all of my study, this is what I found. The word happy means to be happy. It means to find joy in your experiences. It's to feel happy. And that's what God intends. In the midst of the misery and the wickedness of life, God still wants you to experience joy and happiness. He actually makes that possible. Do you know why? Because he gives us himself. He, in fact, gives us all the goodness and all sorts of activities to find joy. In fact, Ecclesiastes 2.25, he says, you can't actually have enjoyment apart from me. And so God gives us activities. And he says, he actually refers to it as our lot. You see that? You've ever heard that? That's your lot in life. This is where it comes from. A lot was like a plot of land, like perhaps you inherited. And what you do is like, this is kind of how you make your living in it. Your lot in life is your circumstances, where you live, who you live with, uh, your family, where you're at. And in your lot, like in your piece of land, I mean, you have to toil and labor and it's difficult. Just like in your life, you got to toil and labor and sometimes it's difficult. Sometimes you even face injustice. But in the same lot, you can experience joy and happiness. God doesn't want you just enduring your life. He wants you actually enjoying it. It's how you live by faith in the midst of the injustices and the trials that you presently face. Because he says, verse 22, for who will bring him to see what will occur after him? Listen, you're going to die. 
You live but once. God wants you to make the most of your life. He even wants you to experience joy. He makes that possible. He wants you happy in all of your activities. And so let's just be real here. Have you experienced injustice? Perhaps you were victimized. Maybe uh, someone um, said bad things about you weren't true and, and you uh, didn't get that promotion. Maybe um, you really weren't speeding, or at least not that much, but you got this pretty sizable fine and you're like, officer, I was going one mile an hour over the speed limit. Like, I don't know, but you were breaking the law and that's it. There you go. And you're like, oh, that's not just. What are you going to do about some of the serious issues that really tear you up? Are you just going to get bitter over it? You going to brood over it? You going to get even? What are you going to do? I want you to know that bitterness—it's like seed. It's a weed, and once you allow that to start being planted in your heart, it just continues to grow, and it takes over. And not only takes over you, it takes over other relationships. It's—it it just distorts everything it touches. And this text says. You're to find joy even in the midst of misery. You know, really, it's a reiteration of what you found in verses 12 and 13. We saw it last week. Remember this. Do not let what you can't control destroy what you can enjoy. Do not let what you can't control destroy what you can enjoy. And so God has given us activities for us to find happiness. That means anything in your life. Your family, your relationships, your home, uh, your job, your work, your recreation, your entertainment, your exercise. You want some Katie's custard? Well, you should get some because it's the best stuff on earth. Ask President George Bush. He had to kept ordering it to his ranch. I tell you, God says, I want you to experience happiness because experiencing happiness, even in the midst of pain and sorrow, is one of the ways that we exercise faith. It is your lot in life. You want some pumpkin pie? You should probably have some. Let me just kind of put it this way. You want to enjoy life right now. Don't wait till like, well, when I retire, I'll start to enjoy. You may not have a whole many day, a lot many days left after you retire. If you can change the bad stuff, change it. But if you can't, you and I need to learn how to find joy in our present circumstances. And we can through relationship with the Lord. I want to tell you that faith learns to live with the inconsistencies and even the absurdities of life. You see, we live by promises, not by explanations. We get this idea that God's got to explain it all to us, and then we're going to be satisfied, and then we'll move on. But you know what? It rarely happens that way. What God wants you to do is to move forward by faith. And you're either going to endure your life, or you're going to enjoy it. The book of Ecclesiastes is a pleading to enjoy life, and that is possible when you are trusting God. What's it going to be for you, life under the sun? If you live just for what you see, and God's not part of the equation, you're going to endure, especially when you face injustice. But with God, there is joy in the journey. And let me just give you this just extra point. If you want to really enjoy life, learn to appreciate people. If you want to enjoy life, Learn to appreciate people. So how do you and I live by faith in the face of injustice and oppression? Look to God to bring justice. Find joy in the journey, verse 22. And finally, answer the call for compassion. 
Chapter 4, verses 1 through 3, the king had witnessed three tragedies. He'd witnessed the oppression and exploitation in the halls of justice, pain and sorrow in the lives of innocent people, and what you see in verse 1 in chapter 4, unconcern on the part of those who could have brought comfort. Look at this. Verse 1, chapter 4. Then I looked again at all the acts of oppression which were being done under the sun. And behold, I saw the tears of the oppressed, that they had no one to comfort them. And on the side of their oppressors was power, but they had no one to comfort them. The word oppression is used three times in verse 1. And do you see that common statement? It's a rhetorical repetition. There was, they had no one to comfort them. This so devastated Solomon as he's observing this. It literally un, caused him to be undone. When you really look at suffering, injustice, and oppression, when you experience it and you really see it for what it really is, it affects you at a core level. It causes you to feel undone. It is so wrong. And that's what Solomon expresses in verses 2 and 3. And I want you to know these next two verses are stark. And he uses hyperbole and a poetic license. But get ready. When he really evaluated this kind of oppression and that no one responded. Verse 2. So I congratulated the dead who are already dead more than the living who are still living. But better off than both of them is the one who has never existed, who has never seen the evil activity that is done under the sun. Now, what he's doing there, he's doing kind of like Job did. I mean, he's just like, you know, it's better not to even be born. This isn't a call for suicide or for abortion. This is Solomon putting his heart out there and just saying, when I saw the evil of injustice and oppression for what it really did and the tears of those people. And it made me feel like it'd be better enough not to live. I mean, have you ever actually kind of felt like that? There's a reason why it's real quiet in here. That's because if most of us, if not all of us, have come to places where it's like the midnight of our souls. Where literally you've endured terrible times. And you have these rock bottom moments. I, I want you to know something. If, you, if you're struggling with some suicidal impulses, would you do me a favor? And as your pastor, I'm telling you, you need to get help. We want you here. God wants you here. His work is not done in you. But we all go through these times of like this just deep, dark nights of the soul. And what you need to do is don't put your faith in your feelings. Put it in God. It may not make sense now, but he's going to see you through. He has you here for a reason. And Solomon is wrestling with this, and he's wrestling with the oppression that he sees and how it's tearing him up. And this is a call, a call to actually uh, respond with compassion when you see injustice and oppression. But in order to do that, God has to do a work in your heart and your life. There is a psalm that I find myself going back to pretty frequently. In fact, we uh, used it uh, as part of our prayer time earlier in our service. It's Psalm 73. I'd really recommend that you take a look at it this week. Because in Psalm 73, 
you have Asaph, and he's observing how, like, all these wicked rich people are just, like, getting away with just being so mean and so down and so hard and so oppressive on poor people. And he's like, it's getting to him. Like he says in Psalm 73, verses 2 and 3, he says, As for me, my feet came close to stumbling. My steps had almost slipped, for I was envious of the arrogant as I saw the prosperity of the wicked. And he actually kind of just starts talking about what this looks like. And he's like on this downward spiral. And I mean, he's about ready to crash and it's painful to read. But then all of a sudden, his perspective changes. He has a different thought. He starts to see things differently. And what happened, he records it in Psalm 73, verses 16 and 17. He says, when I pondered to understand this, it was troublesome in my sight until I came into the sanctuary of God. And then I perceived their end. You see, comprehension and perspective come through an act of worship. You want to see things correctly You need to set your sights and start worshiping God. If it's all life under the sun, it's going to be miserable and mournful. You're going to be like Asaph and you're going to be on this pit and this eddy of despair. But when you come into the sanctuary of God and you really focus on worshiping him, he starts changing your perspective. Now, I'll tell you, when I see injustice, oppression, maybe at times experienced a little bit in my own life, One of the things that's so very helpful for me to deal with this kind of evil that I can't explain is to consider the greatest act of injustice that has ever happened. It took place uh, 2,000 years ago. There was a man who was absolutely perfect in every way, like never erred, never sinned. And yet he was maligned. He was slandered. They hated this guy so much. They tried to trip him up on multiple occasions When they could not, they just decided to take matters in their own hands and they accosted him, threw him through some kangaroo courts and some false trials, some great injustices, beat him, took him to the Roman authorities, handed him over, made false accusations. And the Romans beat this guy to a pulp. He was barely alive. And then they made him haul off part of his cross because they're going to nail him to it. And they did. And they crucified this man this man god jesus it is the greatest act of injustice our world has ever witnessed and yet in the midst of all this injustice that's being unfolded actually god was at work like it says in acts chapter 2 where it says that this man jesus was delivered up by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of god you see god was at work And though it looked like, yes, injustice being manifested to the hilt, God was, in fact, bringing his justice. And what he did is God had his just wrath against sin. Even the very ones who were nailing him, beating him, slandering him, he had his just wrath poured out upon his son. And three days later, Jesus arises from this grave and he appears to many showing that he's alive and by virtue of the fact that he's resurrected do you know what happens not only do you and i have forgiveness of sins when we really believe in him we have life with god and it was prophesied in isaiah chapter 42 verse 3 matthew writes it in matthew 12 verses 20 and 21 a battered reed he shall not break off and a smoldering wick he will not put out until he leads justice 
to victory. And in his name, the Gentiles will hope. You need to know from the heart of the greatest injustice ever perpetuated by the world. God brought the one who will bring justice to all in Jesus. It's kind of like this. God brings ultimate justice and salvation through the world's injustice and sin. That is how God works. And he is going to bring justice. And, uh, you know, when I consider that how God is going to execute final judgment, and he does so through the one who experienced the greatest injustice and yet is the ultimate just one. If God can do that through his son, then what could he potentially do through you and in your situation? If God can do that, could he not work out good in your situation? Now, I want to say something here. If you have been unjust towards someone or some group of people, you have been one who has perpetuated oppression. You have treated unfairly individuals. You have racist tendencies that you sometimes act upon. You have been unjust. I got one word for you. Repent. You need to absolutely right now she asked God to break your heart and cast yourself upon the mercy of Jesus, the one who goes to the cross to pay for that kind of sin. Because if you don't, it is not going to bode well for you in eternity. And don't think like, well, I'll consider that at a later time. You have no guarantee you make it through today. It might be the reason why you're here. He's addressing this sin in your life. And on the other hand, if you've been treated unjustly, you faced, it, faced oppression or injustice, what you want to do is hold on to Jesus. You leave vengeance to him. Remember what the text says. Look to God to bring justice. You find joy right now in your lot, and you can through him. And there is this call to demonstrate compassion. You see that in chapter 4, verse 1. He's asking this rhetorical question that there's just no one there to comfort them. Really? You and I? If we're truly trusting in Christ, God wants us to take the first step. Just take one step to answer the call for compassion. I want you to know that you can make a difference. Does anybody never know what our church's vision statement is? Wow. Nobody does. Okay. We made it four words so even I could remember it. Does anybody know? Okay, here we go. Growing deep, reaching out. You see, what we want to do is grow deep in our relationship with Christ, like a tree sinks deep roots, and you branch out and you reach out with the love of Christ and the life of Christ right where God has planted you, i.e. here. That means it starts right now with you in your situation. Peter Kreft on his door has this cartoon of these two turtles. And one turtle says this, quote, Sometimes I'd like to ask why God allows poverty, famine, and injustice when he could do something about it. And the other, other turtle says, well, I'm afraid God might ask me the same question. And so he is. Who is going to answer the call for compassion? May I suggest it be those who are living with the vertical perspective of trusting in the God, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. This week I was reading uh, one of my daughters, Christiana's uh, essays. She's applying for scholarships will be really nice and we're praying toward that end and um, I was reading through her essays and I was familiar with some of her work that she does with after school kids there's this thing called panther kids where they 
watch uh, kids after school, and uh, it, it's oftentimes chaos in a circus, and there's some kids that are really in trouble. There's, there's one little boy, he's in second grade. Uh, everything that could go wrong is wrong here. He, um, he can't read. He can't speak well. He smells terrible, and none of the other kids will, will play with him. Because of that, he gets bullied a lot. There's no dad in the picture, and the mom even rarely even picks him up from the after-school program. And as I was reading her essay, this, I'll just read you a quote, and I asked her for permission if I could. She writes, My most difficult child last year in Panther Kids, that's an after-school program for elementary-age students, was a little boy who often got in fights, regularly pooped his pants, and had difficulty controlling his emotions. Although he was challenging to work with, I saw the pain this boy was going through and wanted to help. Consequently, I approached my high school pal, that's that at Midway High School, they have a program where you can actually be a mentor to kids that are in trouble or needing extra help. She approached her advisor and asked if I could be his mentor. And as a result, I met with him individually each week to give him guidance and encouragement. Although it may seem small, I believe simply helping one child can make a difference in a family and a school. So I want to ask you, what is your story? Every single person in this room has faced injustice at some point. Some of you, it's, it's been rough. You face serious problems and oppression and injustice. What are you going to do? Are you going to allow the disadvantage to demoralize you? Or are you going to trust God to do a work? Chuck Swindoll in his book, Living on the Ragged Edge, actually uh, writes this prayer out. And I want to just read you excerpts from it. Try this on to pray this. It is not often, Father, that we make such a statement, but today we thank you for the injustices that have crippled us and broken us and crushed us. We want to express our appreciation for the things that have brought us to the place of submission. The only way we can look is up. We see the storm, but we are beginning to see you beyond the storm. How essential is our attitude? Thank you, especially for helping us conquer our bitterness and cynicism, that we may be able to go beyond them and find in Jesus Christ the strength to go on, especially for those who only a few moments ago had just about decided to give up. I pray that they will rather will rather give it all to you in full surrender. In the strong name of Jesus Christ, the conqueror, I pray. Amen. Friends, that's what is needed. Us to completely rest our lives upon him who is just and will bring judgment, who brings joy and is calling us to extend compassion. There's a woman by the name of Patricia Raybon. She's a journalist, a teacher, and an award-winning author. And I recently read a, a work that she wrote, and I was profoundly moved and I, I believe this woman's insights and her heart could have a significant influence in our present day let me just read you an excerpt of, of what she wrote i didn't mean to grow up bitter and here's a picture picture of patricia raybon i was a good girl as a child i obeyed my parents i respected my sunday school teachers i worked hard at school aiming for excellence and trying daily to do my best but some people treated me without love because of my skin color, calling me names, making fun of me, turning me away, closing the doors. In school, one teacher 
refused to call on me in class for an entire year. She called me nobody, making it clear how little she thought of me. Laws in my country stopped me from using certain public water fountains, restrooms, restaurants, or living in certain neighborhoods. In no time at all, I grew bitter. I knew Jesus then, but I also knew hurt. And hurt fertilizes bitterness, making it grow like a weed. Indeed, bitterness is like a root that sinks deep into the soil of our heart and spirit. And when watered with resentment and anger, it springs up and causes trouble, defiling many around it. Hebrews 12, verse 15. Everyone around me hated people. I learned to hate from them. I caught hate to others. What a tragic outcome that bitterness multiplies like a bad seed sprouting, yet more ugly wrong. She goes on to write, I was obsessed with racial hatred, always looking for it in others, not to root it out or to ask God to end it, but to lay blame, to shout, you're wrong. Then she writes, despite the world's injustices that we suffer, Such malice is dangerous, a true sickness, and it won't help bring about the peace and justice of God. But how do we rid ourselves of this bitterness? Finally, turning to God for help, he mercifully mercifully revealed three effective ways, and I want to give them to you. One, take our bitterness to him. Ask God to dig it up and banish it. Two, ask God to teach you. Because forgiveness, as I finally learned, is not an act. Forgiveness is a process. That's just the way Jesus spoke of it. And three, rely on the Holy Spirit's great power. Forgiveness, indeed, is tough work. In our own strength, we can't forgive hurt we don't deserve. The kind of deep hurt that makes us bitter. When we ask the Holy Spirit to empower us, however, his power enables us. The other people see his work in us then our forgiveness becomes a witness. Friends, it's only an act of faith in God. It's the only way we can face the injustices in our world. So let's pray. Lord, you have, through your word, once again encountered and addressed one of the greatest evils in society. And you have brought us right now to a place We're face-to-face with our own humanity and our frailty and even our sin. And if there's someone who has come here today who's never trusted in your son, Jesus, but you brought him here, would they pray with me right now and say, God, I turn from myself and my sin, and you know all about it. But right now I'm trusting in your son for life, for forgiveness. Would you lead me? Lord, for all of us that do know your son, We're far from perfect, and you know all about that. That's why we need a Savior. But we're asking, Lord, that you would help us to live by faith, trusting that you will judge, finding joy in the journey, and responding to the call, just even taking that one step, just even with one person, to extend compassion to the oppressed. For your glory, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.